0: Hi everyone, I'm Alex. Welcome to Reading Poorly. The Mysterious Affair at Styles, Chapter 6: The Inquest. In the interval before the inquest, Poirot was unfailing in his activity. Twice he was closeted with Mr. Wells. He also took long walks into the country. I rather resented his not not taking me into his confidence the more so as I could not in the least guess what he was driving at. It occurred to me that he might have been making inquiries at Rakes's farm, so finding him out when I called at Leastway's Cottage on Wednesday evening, I walked over there by the fields, hoping to meet him. But there was no sign of him, and I hesitated to go right up to the farm itself. As I walked away, I met. An aged rustic who leered at me cunningly. You'm from the hall, baint you? He asked. That, oh, yeah, that's all written, so I'm just gonna go for it. Yes, I'm looking for a friend of mine whom I thought might have walked this way. A little chap as waves in his hand, as waves his hands when he talks. One of them Belgies from the village. The as waves he's er, as waves his hands kind of for some reason struck me um, like a line from uh, Firefly from Zoe, Gina Torres's character, for some reason. I don't know why. <sighs> you know, seeing as we do this or something. Yes, I said eagerly. Has he been here then? Oh, I he's been here right, no- right enough, more than once, too. Friend of yours, Izzy. Ah, you gentlemen from the hall, you'm a pretty lot." And he leered more jocosely than ever, Jocosely, playful or humorous. Why, do the gentlemen from the hall come here often? I asked, as carelessly as I could. He winked at me knowingly. One does, Mr. Naming No Names, mind and a very liberal gentleman too oh thank you sir i'm sure i walked on sharply (laughs) yeah that was kind of awkward evelyn howard had been right then and i experienced a sharp twinge of disgust as i thought of alfred engelhorpe's liberality with another woman's money had that uh, piquant gypsy face been at the bottom of the crime or was it the baser mainspring of money? Probably a judicious mixture of both. On one point, Poirot seemed to have a curious obsession. He once or twice observed to me that he thought Dorcas must have made an error in fixing the time of the quarrel. He suggested to her repeatedly that it was 4.30 and not 4 o'clock when she had heard the voices. This, of course, coming from... Is it Manning, the gardener? Because he said it was probably closer to 4.30. But Dorcas was unshaken. Quite an hour, or even more, had elapsed between the time when she had heard the voices and five o'clock, when she had taken tea to her mistress. The inquest was held on Friday at the Stylites' arms in the village. Poirot and I sat together, not being required to give evidence. The preliminaries were gone through, the jury viewed the body, and John Cavendish made evidence of identification. Further questioned, he described his awakening in the early hours of the morning, and the circumstances of his mother's death. The medical evidence was next taken. There was a breathless hush, and every eye was fixed on the famous London specialist, who was known to be one of the greatest authorities of the day on the subject of toxicology. In a few brief words, he summed up the result of the post mortem. Shorn of its medical phraseology and technicalities, it amounted to the fact that Mrs. Inglethorpe had met her death as the result of strychnine poisoning. Judging from the quantity recovered, she must have taken not less than three-quarters of a grain of strychnine, but probably one grain or slightly over. Is it possible that she could have swallowed the poison by accident? asked the coroner. I should consider it very unlikely strychnine is not used for domestic purposes as some poisons are and there are restrictions placed on its sale does anything in your examination lead you to determine how the poison was administered no you arrived at styles before dr wilkins i believe that is so the motor met me just outside the lodge gates and i hurried there as fast as i could will you relate to us exactly what happened next i entered mrs inglethorpe's room she was at that moment in a typical titanic convulsion she turned towards me and gasped out alfred alfred could the strychnine have been administered in mrs inglethorpe's after-dinner coffee which was taken to her by her husband possibly but strychnine is a fairly rapid drug in its action the symptoms appear from one to two hours after it has been swallowed it is retarded under certain conditions none of which however appear to have been present in this case i presume mrs inglethorpe took the coffee after dinner about eight o'clock whereas the symptoms did not manifest themselves till the early hours of the morning which on the face of it points to the drug having been taken much later in the evening. "'Mrs. Inglethorpe was in the habit of drinking a cup of cocoa in the middle of the night. "'Could the strychnine have been administered in that? "'No. I myself took a sample of the cocoa remaining in the saucepan and had it analyzed. "'There was no strychnine present.' "'But did they take a sample of the cup?' <laughs> "'I heard Paul Poirot, chuckles softly beside me. "'How did you know?' I whispered. "'Listen.' I should say, the doctor was continuing, that I would have been considerably surprised at any other result. Why? Simply because strychnine has an unusually bitter taste. It can be detected in a solution of 1 in 70,000, and can only be disguised by some strongly flavored substance. Cocoa would be quite powerless to mask it. Good job, Poirot. One of the jury wanted to know if the same objection applied to coffee. No. Coffee has a bitter taste of its own, which would probably cover the taste of the strychnine. The taste of strychnine. When you consider it more likely that the drug was administered in the coffee, oh, then you consider it more likely that the drug was administered in the coffee, but for some unknown reason, its action was delayed. Yes, but the cup being completely smashed, there is no possibility of analyzing its contents. This concluded Dr. Bauerstein's evidence. Dr. Wilkins co- corroborated it on all points. Sounded as to the possibility of suicide, he repudiated it utterly. The deceased, he said, suffered from a weak heart, but otherwise enjoyed perfect health, and was of a cheerful and well-balanced disposition. She would be one of the last people to take her own life. Oh, how we know better now, huh? I'm thinking of Robin Williams in particular. But... um, Okay, Lawrence Cavendish was next called. His evidence was quite unimportant being a mere repetition of that of his brother just as he was about to step down he paused and said rather hesitatingly i would like to make a suggestion if i may he glanced glanced deprecatingly at the coroner who replied briskly certainly mr cavendish we are here to arrive at the truth of the matter and welcome anything that may lead to further elucidation it is just an idea of mine explained lawrence Of course, I may be quite wrong, but it still seems to me that my mother's death might be accounted for by natural means. How do you make that out, Mr. Cavendish? My mother, at the time of her death, was for some time before it taking a tonic containing strychnine. Ah, said the coroner. The jury looked up, interested. I believe, continued Lawrence, that there have been cases where the cumulative effect of a drug administered for some time has ended by causing death. Um, I'm thinking of arsenic that at least according to, you know, TV, <laughs> that kind of thing. Also, is it not possible that she may have taken an overdose of her medicine by accident? This is the first we have heard of the deceased taking strychnine at the time of her death. We are much obliged to you, Mr. Cavendish. Dr. Wilks, uh, Dr. Wilkins was recalled and, and, uh, and ridiculed the idea. What Mr. Cavendish suggests is quite impossible. Any doctor would tell you the same. Strychnine is, in a certain sense, a cumulative poison, but it would be quite impossible for it to result in sudden death in this way. There would have have to be a long period of chronic symptoms, which would at once have attracted my attention. The whole thing is absurd. And the second suggestion, that Mrs. Inglethorpe may have inadvertently taken an overdose three or even four doses would not have resulted in death. Mrs. Inglethorpe always had an extra large amount of medicine made up at a time. As she dealt with Coots, the cash chemists in Tadminster, she would have had to take very nearly the whole bottle to account for the amount of strychnine found at the post-mortem. Personally, I find that rather odd. I remember my great-grandmother when she was getting on in the years, saying that she would never buy green bananas because she was afraid she would outlive them. <laughs> so it seems odd to me that an old woman who's, you know, well, I mean, she didn't necessarily think she was on death's door, but <laughs> would buy very or extra large amounts of medicine. <laughs> but, you know, do each their own, I guess. Do each his or her own. Then you consider that we may dismiss the the tonic as not being in any way instrumental in causing her death certainly the supposition is ridiculous the same jurymen who had interrupted before here suggested that the chemist who made up the medicine might have committed an error that of course is always possible replied the doctor but dorcas who was the next witness called dispelled even that possibility the medicine had not been newly made up On the contrary, Mrs. Inglethorpe had taken the last dose on the day of her death. So the question of the tonic was finally abandoned, and the coroner proceeded with his task. Having elicited from Dorcas how she had been awakened by the violent ringing of her mistress's bell, and had subsequently roused the household, he passed to the subject of the quarrel on the preceding afternoon. I'm going to read that over again. Having elicited from Dorcas how she had been awakened by the violent ringing of her mistress's bell and had subsequently roused the household, he passed to the subject of the quarrel on the preceding afternoon. That sounded better. Dorcas's evidence on this point was substantially what Poirot and I had already heard, so I will not repeat it here. The next witness was Mary Cavendish. She stood very upright and spoke in a low, clear, and perfectly composed voice. In answer to the coroner's question, she told how, her alarm clock having aroused her at 4.30 as usual, she was dressing when she was startled by the sound of something heavy falling. I think I've been influenced too much by Agatha Christie's writing, and I just now noticed it because she writes in a lot of run-on sentences or really long sentences that might not quite be run-on but are very long. (laughs) And I do that all the time. (sighs) In answer to the coroner's question, I'm reading the same one again. She told how her alarm clock having aroused her at 4.30 as usual, she was dressing when she was startled by the sound of something heavy falling. That was a better emphasis. That's a lot of commas in one sentence. One, two, three, four commas in one sentence. That would have been the table by the bed, commented the coroner. I opened my door, continued Mary, and listened. In a few minutes the bell rang violently. Dorcas came running down and woke my husband. And we all went to my mother-in-law's room, but it was locked. The coroner interrupted her i really do not think we need trouble you further on that point we know all that can be known of the subsequent happenings but i should be obliged if you would tell us all you overheard of the quarrel the day before i there was a faint insolence in her voice she raised her hand and adjusted the ruffle of lace at her neck turning her head a little as she did so and quite spontaneously the thought flashed across my mind she is gaining time there was a faint insolence in her voice she raised her hand and adjusted the ruffle of lace at the back of her neck turning her head a little as she did so and quite spontaneous okay so she's she's stalling I guess in order to think of something yes I understand continued the coroner deliberately that you were sitting reading on the bench just outside the long window of the boudoir is it so or that is so is it not this was news to me and glancing sideways at poirot i fancied that it was news to him as well there was the faintest pause the mere hesitation of a moment before she answered yes that is so and the boudoir window was open was it not surely her face grew a little paler as she answered yes then you cannot have failed to hear the voices inside, especially as they were raised in anger. In fact, they would be more audible where you were than in the hall. Possibly. Will you repeat to us what you overheard of the quarrel? I really do not remember hearing anything. Do you mean to say you did not hear the voices, or you did not hear voices? Oh yes, I heard the voices, but I did not hear what they said. A faint spot of color came into her cheek. I am not in the habit of listening to private conversations. The coroner persisted. And you remember nothing at all? Nothing, Mrs. Cavendish? Not one stray word or phrase to make you realize that it was a private conversation? She paused and seemed to reflect, still outwardly as calm as ever. Yes, I remember. Mrs. Inglethorpe said something. I do not remember exactly what— about causing a scandal between husband and wife. Ah, the coroner leant back, satisfied. That corresponds with what Dorcas heard. But excuse me, Mrs. Cavendish. Although you realized it was a private conversation, you did not move away. You remained where you were. I caught the momentary gleam of her tawny eyes as she raised them. I felt a certain. I felt certain that at the moment. <sighs> i felt certain that at that moment she would willingly have torn the little lawyer with his insinuations into pieces but she quietly or but she replied quietly enough no i was very comfortable where i was i fixed my mind on my book and that is all you can tell us that is all the examination was over though I doubted if the coroner was entirely satisfied with it. I think he suspected that Mary Cavendish could tell more if she chose. Amy Hill, shop assistant, was next called, and deposed to having sold a will form on the afternoon of the 17th to William Earl, under er, under Gardner at Stiles. William Earl and Manning succeeded her, and testified to witnessing a document. Manning fixed the time at about 4.30. William was of the opinion that it was rather earlier. I'm impressed with myself that I remember the name Manning. (laughs) Um, Yeah, maybe it was Eli Manning or Chelsea Manning in my head that made me think of him. Cynthia Murdoch came next. She had, however, little to tell she had known nothing of the tragedy until awakened by mrs cavendish you did not hear the table fall no i was fast asleep the coroner smiled a good conscience makes a sound sleeper he observed thank you miss murdoch that is all not to be confused with matt Murdock. miss howard miss howard produced the letter written to her by mrs singlethorpe on the evening of the 17th Poirot and i had of course already seen it It added nothing to our knowledge of the tragedy the following is a facsimile Um, styles court essex handwritten note july 17th my dear evelyn can we not bury the hatchet i have found it hard to forgive the things you said against my dear husband but i am an old woman and very fond of you yours affectionately emily inglethorpe Um, I tried to pause at line breaks I didn't do it very well but there were lots of line breaks for some reason um, and I don't see any like um, like pattern in the first letters or the first words or something July might or... Styles Essex Hand July, My can the found the against, but and yours, Emily. Yeah, that doesn't really work much. Um, let's see. I'll read the end. Um, seven Court, Essex Note 17th, Evelyn Barry have forgive, said husband, Woman you affectionately, Inglethorpe. I don't know, that sounds more coherent, but I still don't know what it means. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to move on. (laughs) It was handed to the jury, who scrutinized it attentively. I fear it does not help us much, said the coroner, with a sigh. There is no mention of any of the the events of that afternoon. Plain as a pike staff to me, said Miss Howard shortly. It shows clearly enough that my poor old friend had just found out she'd been made a fool of. That was the longest sentence I think she said. It says nothing of the kind in the letter, the coroner pointed out. No, because Emily could never bear to put herself in the wrong. But I know her. She wanted me back. But she wasn't going to own that I'd been right. She went round about. Most people do. Don't believe in it myself. Mr. Wells smiled faintly. So, I noticed, did several of the jury... "'Miss Howard was obviously quite a public character. "'Anyway, all this tomfoolery is a waste of time,' continued the lady, "'glancing up and down the jury disparagingly. "'Talk, talk, talk. "'When all the time we know perfectly well, "'the coroner interrupted her in an agony of apprehension. "'Thank you, Miss Howard. That is all.' "'I fancy he breathed a sigh of relief when she complied. "'Then came the sensation of the day.' the coroner called albert mace the chemist's assistant it was our agitated young man of the pale face in answer to the coroner's questions he explained that he was a qualified pharmacist but had only recently come to this particular shop as the assistant formerly there had just been called up for the army these preliminaries completed the coroner proceeded to business Mr. Mace, have you lately sold strychnine to any unauthorized person? Yes, sir. When was this? Last Monday night. Monday? Not Tuesday? No, sir. Monday the 16th. Will you tell uh, Will you tell us to whom you sold it? You could have heard a pin drop. Yes, sir. It was to Mr. Inglethorpe. Dun, dun, dun. Every eye turned simultaneously to where Alfred Inglethorpe was sitting. Oh, didn't know he was in the room. Impassive and wooden. He started slightly, as the damning words fell from the young man's lips. I half thought he was going to rise from his chair, but he remained seated, although a remarkably well-acted expression of astonishment rose on his face. "'You are sure of what you say?' asked the coroner sternly. "'Quite sure, sir. Are you in the habit of selling strychnine indiscriminately over the counter?' The wretched young man wilted visibly under the coroner's frown. "'Oh, no, sir, of course not.' But seeing it was Mr. Inglethorpe of the Hall, I thought there was no harm in it. He said it was to poison a dog. Inwardly, I sympathized. It was only human nature to endeavor to please the Hall, especially when it might result in custom. Oh, to please. Sorry. It was only human nature to endeavor to please the Hall. There we go. Especially when it might result in custom being transferred from Coots to the local establishment is it not customary for anyone purchasing poison to sign a book yes sir mr mr inglethorpe did so have you got the book here yes sir it was produced and with a few words of stern censure the coroner dismissed the wretched mr mace then amidst a breathless silence alfred inglethorpe was called did he realize i wonder i wondered how closely the halter was being drawn around his neck the coroner went straight to the point. On Monday evening last, did you purchase strychnine for the purpose of poisoning a dog? Inglethorpe replied with perfect calmness. No, I did not. There is no dog at Styles except an outdoor sheepdog, which is in perfect health. You deny absolutely having purchased strychnine from Alfred Mace on Monday last? I do. Do you also deny this? It, it, it's italicized, so I was dramatic about it i don't know that i needed to be that dramatic but you know whatever the coroner handed him the register in which his signature was inscribed certainly i do the handwriting is quite different from mine i will show you he took an old envelope out of his pocket and wrote his name on it handing it to the jury it was certainly utterly dissimilar of course he just wrote it so (laughs) then what is your explanation of mr mace's statement Alfred Inglethorpe replied imperturbably. Mr. Mace must have been mistaken. The coroner hesitated for a moment and then said, Mr. Inglethorpe, as a mere matter of form, would you mind telling us where you were on the evening of Monday, July 16th? Really? I cannot remember. I said that with too much of a question mark. It's just like, really, I can't remember, or I cannot remember. That is absurd, Mr. Inglethorpe, said the coroner sharply, thinking, yeah inglethorpe shook his head i cannot tell you i have an idea that i was out walking in what direction i really can't remember the coroner's face grew graver were you in company with anyone no did you meet anyone on your walk no that is a pity said the coroner dryly i am to take it then that you declined to say where you were at the time that mr mace positively recognized you as entering the shop to purchase strychnine If you'd like to take it that way, yes. Be careful, Mr. Inglethorpe. Poirot was fidgeting nervously. Sacre, he murmured. Does this imbecile of a man want to be arrested? Clearly, he's protecting someone. It's more important to him that whatever the truth of where he was, not get out, than it is for him not to get arrested. He also might know that Poirot will eventually exonerate him. Inglethorpe was indeed creating a bad impression. His futile denials would not have convinced a child. The coroner, however, (laughs) passed briskly to the next point, and Poirot drew a deep breath of relief. You had a discussion with your wife on Tuesday afternoon? Pardon me, interrupted Alfred Inglethorpe. You have been misinformed. I had no quarrel with my dear wife. The whole story is absolutely untrue. I was absent from the house the entire afternoon. That is interesting have you anyone who can testify to that you have my word said inglethorpe haughtily that is not enough the coroner did not trouble to reply yeah there are two witnesses who will swear to having heard your disagreement with mrs inglethorpe those witnesses were mistaken i mean as far as i'm concerned i don't remember now maybe you remember and maybe i'm bad at remembering which is absolutely true Okay. I do not remember any of the witnesses saying that they heard Alfred talking. I remember them saying that they heard Emily saying things, and I should say Mr. Inglethorpe, Mrs. Inglethorpe, but I'm not sure I remember them actually saying, I heard Alfred Inglethorpe say this. I remember there was an argument and i remember i heard mrs Inglethorpe's, you know say this very loudly so it could very well be that this discussion of scandal between husband and wife could have been had with someone else possibly who sounded vaguely similar to alfred or you know just depending on the way the, the house is built just a man or a woman with a low voice Again, I'm having flashes of, flashbacks of *Knives Out*, but you know, really, if you like Agatha Christie and you haven't seen *Knives Out*, you really should. And I hope it's not a problem for me to say that. <laughs> this is a review. <laughs> no, it's not really a review, but it's a it's a pop culture reference, really. So. Hashtag not sponsored. Nothing is sponsored. Well. I mean nothing about this podcast is sponsored okay you have my word um oh two witnesses those witnesses are mistaken okay i'm back i was puzzled the man spoke with such quiet assurance that i was staggered i looked at Poirot. there was an expression of exultation on his face which i could not understand was he at last convinced of mr alfred englethorpe's guilt of course not mr Inglethorpe, said the coroner you have heard your wife's dying words repeated here. Can you explain them in any way? Certainly I can. You can? It seems to me very simple. The room was dimly lighted. Dr. Bauerstein was, is much of my height and build, and like me, wears a beard. In the dim light, and suffering as she was, my, wife, er, my poor wife mistook him for me. Ah, murmured Poirot to himself, but it is an idea that. You think it is true? I whispered. I do not say that. But it is truly an ingenious supposition. You read my wife's last words as an accusation, Englethorpe was continuing. They were, on the contrary, an appeal to me. The coroner reflected a moment. Then he said, I believe, Mr. Englethorpe, that you yourself poured out the coffee and took it to your wife that evening? I poured it out, yes but I did not take it to her. I meant to do so, but I was told that a friend was at the hall door, so I laid down the coffee on the hall table. When I came through the hall again a few minutes later, it was gone. This statement might or might not be true, but it did not seem to to me to improve matters much for Mr. Er, much for Inglethorpe. No, Mr. It did not seem to me to improve matters much for Inglethorpe. In any case he had had ample time to introduce the poison. At that point, Poirot nudged me gently, indicating two men who were sitting together near the door. One was a little, sharp, dark, ferret-faced man. The other was tall and fair. <laughs> um, when I think ferret-faced, I think of um, like long features, like the tall guy... From the animated 101 Dalmatians I'll let you think of that one I questioned Poirot mutely he put his lips to my ear do you know who that little man is I shook my head that is Des- Detective Inspector James Japp of Scotland Yard, Jimmy Japp <laughs> Jimmy Japp I'm thinking Jib Japp is that still a thing I don't know the other man is from Scotland Yard too. Things are moving quickly, my friend. I stared at the two men intently. There was certainly nothing of the policeman, er, policeman about them. There was certainly not. Oh, like they didn't look like police officers. Got it. There was certainly nothing of the policeman about them, because it's policeman, not men. I should never have suspected them of being official personages. I was still staring when I was startled and recalled by the verdict being given. Willful murder against some person or persons unknown. Well, there we go. Thank you for listening this long to me, Reading Poorly.